Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 65, and we'll spend time with Amat Koza and hear about Lieutenant Colonel John Graham. I mentioned last episode that he was going to introduce what he would call a proper degree of terror in the Zurfeld, where the British adopted an ethnic cleansing campaign in 1811 and 1812. All the important players in this terrible drama have been met. Jacob Kyler, the Utenhaeg Landrost, Governor Craddock, Inglika, and Lambe, Kungwa of the Kunukwebe, Stockenstrom of Hrafrenet. So when Craddock, who had been dispatched to southern Africa after being removed as commander of the English forces in the Spanish peninsula, decided to launch his own military excursion, he believed the might of the European musket and military would easily overcome the Amakosa. It was now a matter of selecting someone to bring what he called the horrible savages to order. Jacob Kyler was first on the list as the Landros in the Zutfeld, and a former military man himself. He had experience of the area and was initially thought of as the likely candidate to lead an operation of this kind. Instead, Craddock selected Lieutenant Colonel John Graham. The governor had only been in the Cape for three weeks and wanted to personally brief the officer involved, and was also aware of the propensity for the colonials on the frontier to default to cattle raiding instead of conducting a proper war. Because he was in a rush and there would have been no time to head off to Utenhaeg or to have Kyler come to Cape Town for a briefing, that meant John Graham got the job. He was 33 and the second son of the Laird of Fintry, an ancient Scottish family. Graham cast around for troops and of course he was going to use the regular Koi Koi Regiment, which came to be known as the Cape Corps. They were the first formal military unit comprised of home-born South Africans. The British had created this unit formally during their first run at the Cape between 1795 and 1803, and now they were going to be given more training, disciplinary codes, and the full dress of a formal British regiment. They would also be known from now on as the Cape Regiment or the Cape Corps. These men were going to be significant as the upcoming Fourth Frontier War began. Lieutenant Colonel Graham was brutal, but he was no fool. When it came to the Cape Corps uniform, he adopted what you could call a revolutionary colour, green. That was suited to the Zurfeld terrain far more than the conventional scarlet tunics of most of the British army. The rifle had just begun to make its appearance in Europe. The smooth-bore musket was rapidly being replaced by weapons that had rifling in the barrels, spinning a bullet, making it far more accurate. The first rifle corps had been formed in 1797, while the first regiment of the rifle brigade was formed in 1800 with British weapons. From the start, these riflemen were dressed in dark green uniforms, imitating the Austrian Jachers. These men were also allowed to grow large moustaches, and the dark green cloth was the forerunner of modern camouflage dress. While the Cape Corps had the distinction of being the most advanced European-linked army in Africa in terms of their dress code, they did not receive the rifle. They had to continue making do with the musket. Here we meet young Andre Stockenstrom once more, who became the first white South African-born officer in the regiment, joining in January 1811 after his return from Ntlambe. Lieutenant Colonel Graham was on the move, but not to the Zufeld initially. He was just about to resign from the Cape Court to join one of his relatives fighting in Europe as part of Wellington's staff in Spain when Craddock gave him the job of clearing the Zufeld. He was appointed Commissioner for All Civil and Military Affairs in the Frontier Districts on the 30th of September 1811, and he immediately set off for the frontier on horseback. Just over a week later, the main force embarked at Cape Town for the coastal voyage to Algoa Bay. They would meet up with Graham later. There were 246 Khoi members of the Cape Corps, 
accompanied by Ensign Andris Stockensroom, and they were joined by 214 British regulars and artillerymen with their cannon. A commando of several hundred Boers was also being assembled at Algoa Bay, while another 1,000 British and Khoikhoi soldiers and auxiliaries based around the frontier were preparing for war along the entire front-lying districts. Martial law was then declared and all officials were told to follow Graham's orders. Waiting for them in the Zurfeld were around 5,000 Amatkoza warriors from the various chieftains, but they were not organised in a single force. This was going to have implications for their capacity to fight the colonists. Back at the Cape, Governor Craddock began to have a few doubts. After the departure of the artillery and the other units, he realised that he had diminished the garrison and also sent all his warships up the coast to Algoa Bay. His report back to the colonial office in Liverpool appeared defensive. I have felt the necessity to enter upon some measure of more effectual operation against the ill-disposed of the black tribes than those hitherto adopted, he wrote. I anxiously hope that these measures will meet with the approbation of His Majesty's Government. Then he sat back and waited to hear what His Majesty's Government thought, and for news about the war he'd set in motion on the eastern frontier. We must now turn to Tungwa of the Kulnkwebi, who did not have long to live. He'd done his best to stay on good terms with Major Jacob Kyler, assuring him that he wished to live peaceably with the Dutch and the English. Kyler naturally assumed that meant Kungwa was going to withdraw his people east over the Fish River, but Kungwa meant nothing of the sort, since that meant forfeiting his autonomy and his birthright. Between 1793 and 1811, Kungwa had managed to negotiate the thorny relationship with three different colonial governments and with the Trekboers. In the 1780s, Kungwa and his father, Chaka, had firmly established the area between the Fish and the Sundays rivers as Kungwebe territory. Just for orientation, the Sundays River flows into Algoa Bay near Port Elizabeth, or Kabeja, as we call it today. That's quite a chunk of real estate. Kungwa wanted a quiet life and spent much of the initial period placating the colony and paying various colonial officials small amounts of cattle for the land. It's clear that these officials did not report the herds, pocketing them as their own. The Trekboers in the Zurfeld were aware of these payments, and in the next podcast you'll see why this became such a core narrative through the years. The Kunukwebe offered to help the Boers against the San at the end of the 18th century, as the ancient hunters were being hunted themselves and forced out of the Zufel. Damat Koza and the San were not friends, so that was an easy decision for the chiefs. Meanwhile, Inklambe and Inlika continued to raid Kungwa's people, so many ended up working on Trekboer farms by the early part of the 19th century. Other members of Kungwa's tribe, however, indulged in cattle rustling, Hungry Amakosa from the Kunukwebe regularly tramped through Boer pastures and trapped game for meat and skins on these lands. Because many of the Kunukwebe were Khoi, they attracted escaped slaves, and so in retaliation the Boers began shooting Kunukwebe out of hand. Periodic meetings between first Chaka and then Kungwa and colonial officials prevented direct war until Lindukyu's commander of 1793 that we've heard about. This provoked Kunukwebe and Mbalu if you remember him, to settle old scores with the colonists. Frontiers are always a mess, and this was no different. Then Ntlambi rose in power to the east after splitting with Uncle Nguika and cut off Kungwa's retreat. 
so he adopted a policy of defiance instead. When requested to cross the Fish River, he refused. Just to make sure he had a big enough army of warriors to worry the colonists, he forced the Amambalu chiefs Nkleno and Tole to remain at his side by seizing their cattle. He continued to hedge his bets, though, when it came to full-scale war with the colonists. When the rebel Koe Namakosa attacked the Cape in 1799, he refused to join the more opportunistic chiefs, but then gave shelter to the Koi leader Klaas Stuermann, who was a neutral, but the Boers didn't think so. Neutrality didn't save Tungo either from a commando raid that followed, nor from being ordered east of the Fish River together with the other chiefs who had been far more aggressive. The Batavians and later the British would paint all Amatkosa with a single brush stroke, thus reinforcing the us-versus-them narrative that was going to plague South Africa for the next two centuries. Ngrika would also not allow Tungwa to leave, if you recall. Ngrika's strategy was to maintain his power in the Zutfeld by forcing chiefs to stay, but this meant Tungwa had only one way to move, and that was towards the west, the Cape. And Lambe also pushed them further west, not only because the Rarabi rebel used to make sarcastic remarks about Tungwa's big belly, and then try to make him attack Nika, but also because Ntlambi had invaded his grazing land along the Bushman's River. So Tungwa's people would roam about the western parts of the Zutfeld and were a common sight to the colonists, who would write about their roving and rambling and strolling, as they called it. And these colonists naturally assumed Tungwa's supporters were stealing their cattle, while they were also busy with the old pastime of driving their herds from their winter pastures near Bushman's River to their summer pastures on the Sundays River, or even further west, past Algoa Bay. When pressurised by Kyla to leave the region in 1811, he reminded the British Landros that he had been in this part of the country before the Christians, as he put it, and as proof, asked those who visited if they do not see as many of the remains of the old Amakosa kraals and the walls of old houses. And so, as Graham began warming up his army in 1811, Tungwa continued his seasonal movements, part of the landscape, and then sent Kyla an ox as payment. Kyla rejected this as a bribe, which of course was completely the wrong way to view the gift. It was payment for grass, as the Amatkosa would say, and had been the custom of the Trekboers to accept such payments, and indeed make such payments themselves. Kyla's rejection was a blatant insult to this old Kunukwebe leader, and Tungwa made it known he wasn't going anywhere for anyone. If the British Landros didn't have the honour to receive his gift, then he wasn't going to continue kowtowing before this young man. Furthermore, Tungwa knew that his people had to move their animals, their livelihood depended on it. I've explained at length many podcasts ago how the Sauerfeld and the Sweetfeld system worked in the Eastern Cape. In summer 1811, Tungwa began moving towards the east, then changed direction and moved back towards the west, saying that the wolves, as he put it, or hyenas, were destroying his cattle further east. If you approach the Zutfeld from the south, you'll notice that it's the zone of entry into the coastal summer rainfall area of South Africa. At the Cape, the wettest months are in June, July and August, the southern hemisphere midwinter. The southeast coast is cool but often becoming uncomfortably cold, with thick frost and even snow in the higher altitudes but at lower altitudes it stays very dry. As spring passes into summer, the Cape dries out, while the coastal belt from around Algoa Bay starts to receive its rains carried in by the northeasterly winds from the Indian Ocean. 
The rain then tends to fall in this region between November and April. Often these rains fall as violent thunderstorms, terrifying the uninitiated, lightning killing many people each year, which it continues to do today. The displays of electrical power and powerful rumbles of thunder can be extremely frightening to those who arrive on holiday from other parts of the world. They were as powerfully frightening in 1811 as well. The southeastern coastal region then transforms with rivers turning into torrents and cutting deeply across the territory of the escarpment and the sea. Usually these rivers are picturesque, gently flowing streams with wide canyons of soft sand and white stones. When the rains come, they turn into foaming, raging floodwaters that sweep all before them. You'll see trees with snakes and other animals clinging on for dear life being driven downstream. Then the sweet grass sprouts and the amatkoza crops of sorghum, corn and pumpkins are sown starting in September and October and then ripen from mid-December to March. During this period, the chief will shawama or proclaim a day for the first fruits ceremony. No one can eat from the ripening crops and vegetables until the chief had done so at this ceremony. That's when the chief's people would gather at his great place and bring some portion of their harvest which would then be communally feasted upon. After this, the people can eat from their harvest freely. The first fruit ceremony is a happy time, venerated as the most important celebration of the Amatkosa. There would be new pasture, the weather was warm, the milk was flowing, it was thick and rich, and their diet would change, to include a variety of food types. Lieutenant Colonel John Graham had been briefed about the ceremony, and as a soldier he knew this was the best time to strike the Amatkosa. Attacking when your enemy is most relaxed is a very old military trick. Still, he had to wait before striking his first blows because when the British troops arrived in the Zurfeld, rivers were still in spate. We chose the season of the corn being on the ground in order that if the blacks would not keep their promise of going away, that we might the more severely punish them for their many crimes by destroying it, Graham pointed out. He had to bide his time until the rivers subsided because his men could not cross them and because his plan was to drive the Amatkosa eastwards and they also could not cross the flooded rivers to do this. First, Graham had to meet Enrique to convince him to leave the Zurfeld Amatkosa alone as they fled the western reaches and headed to the east bank of the Great Fish River across his territory. If they were determined to resist, said Graham, we knew that they would use their utmost efforts and we were anxious to convince them how vain the efforts of the whole tribe of the blacks would be against the force that we could, at any time, bring against them. Graham decided to launch this most violent campaign on Christmas Day of 1811. It was to be the first of the next three wars between the Amatkosa and the colonists that would begin at Christmas. Graham had a three-pronged strategy. Stockenstrom Sr., along with his son Andres, acting as his aide-de-camp, was to lead a Boer commander in the Zurfeld from the north. Kyla was to cross the Sundays River at Algoa Bay on the coast and march on Enchlambe's great place near the Kaiskama River close to the ocean. Between these two movements, a third force, led by Captain George Fraser of the Cape Regiment, the Cape Corps, accompanied by Graham, would move against the majority of the Amatkosa, who'd be driven by the other two forces into the center of the Zutfeld. Massed in this area, they'd be corralled like animals and chased east over the Great Fish River. That was the plan. As you know, if you know this area, the big problem for the colonial forces lay with the dense bush close to the coast and along the river valleys. The flora here has a formal name, the Albany Thickets, 
an area of woodland that grows in well-drained sandy soils in the valleys of the Great Fish, Sundays and Hamtos rivers. These valleys are part of the Cape Fold Belt, if you remember all the way back to the first few episodes of the series where we concentrated on the geology. The Amatkozo were expert at disappearing into the Albany thickets, many studded with thorn bushes that could tear at skin and clothing. It was the home of the elephant and rhino, and today the Addo Elephant Park, where the bush elephant can be found as an example of the type of vegetation we're talking about. Kungwa had sheltered here from both Nklambi and the commandos when they came for him, and Nklambi was going to use these thickets as his main defence. For the Amatkoza, the riverine bush was a maze into which they could drive their herds of cattle. They were a web of narrow, intricate paths used by animals. For the British and Boers, they were mysterious, sharp-edged, thorny, a place to get hopelessly lost and then be stabbed to death by attackers you can't even see. Kaila marched to Tungwa's great place only to find that Onukwebe assembled in full battle dress. The men were wearing the blue crane feather, the Amatosa cap of war. But Tungwa was bedridden. He was old and sick and dying. First, though, he sent a message to Kaila conceding that the Onukwebe had got the message, but not actually agreeing to leave. Craddock had briefed Graham very carefully. He explained that first the British were to instruct the Amatosa to leave in the greatest mildness and temper, which must be displayed by all troops and every person under Graham's command. The Amatkosa must be given the chance to go quietly, said the governor, only if they refused should measures of severity be resorted to. But once he'd marched beyond sight of Algoa Bay, Graham changed the order slightly to coolness and firmness, rather than mildness of temper. They would be given a short time to collect their cattle, if they didn't, then the Khoikhoi and the Boers would do it for them. Those who resisted would be shot. Those who survived the first shooting would then be given time to leave again, but no mercy shown to them if they resist, was Graham's final order. The gloves would really come off after that. The next few days were going to go down in history, so they say, and when you hear the tale, what Ntlambe did, what happened to Tungwa, and Stockenstrom the Elder, I think you will understand why the Amatkoza and the British and the Boers still remember this war. Whatever your brand of politics, there is no doubt that the memory of what happened between 1811 and 1812 still flows through our consciousness today as South Africans. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. Thanks so much to all the messages I'm getting from people. Thank you so much. And by the way, we've just gone past 215,000 listens, so thank you so much. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, salagat.